Good morning. Starting on a new journey this morning, we are uh, entering into the book of Hebrews, and we're going to spend some time in the months ahead walking through the uh, book of Hebrews. Uh, the book of Hebrews is written really to show uh, the glory of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all of God's promises, that every promise of God is yes in Jesus Christ, and that He fulfills everything that God has intended throughout all of the Old Testament uh, and in His purposes even in creation. So we are in Hebrews. We're going to start in the first four verses this morning. There are a number of sermons in these verses, but we're going to do one. So it's going to be dense. Hear then the Word of God. Long ago at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom He also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, and He's the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name that he inherited is more excellent than theirs. The Word of God. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your Word that is living and true, and we thank you for the Christ that is revealed here, for Jesus in all of his glory and all of his goodness, all that he is and all that he has done. For us. Open our eyes this morning that we may see, that we may know, and so that we may love and trust and rest in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may or may not know it about me, but I'm a Packer fan. And this past week they traded Aaron Rodgers to the Jets. Now, I don't know if you know, you know, Aaron Rodgers is kind of synonymous with Packer. Uh, and so it was a big deal. He's been our quarterback for a long time. And uh, it's kind of bittersweet. You can talk to different fans and they'll tell you. But I've seen him in games. I've been watching him for years and um, seeing him, you know, on the sidelines and how he behaves. I've seen him in commercials, right? He's done some pretty funny commercials along the way. I've seen interviews of him, and I've seen him in his various haircuts. Sometimes his hair is long, sometimes his hair is short. And the whole, I, you know, I saw him in the whole vaccine controversy. You know, did he get it? Didn't he get it? He wasn't so clear about it. I've seen him, he's had beards, no beards. You know, I've seen a lot of things about Aaron Rodgers, but here's the point of what I'm saying. You're all like, where is he going with this? And my point is this, I don't know Aaron Rodgers. I know a little bit about Aaron Rodgers. I've seen some things, you know, about Aaron Rodgers. I know what he looks like in his various, you know, uh, iterations. But I have no personal knowledge of Aaron Rodgers whatsoever. I don't know him. I don't have a relationship with him. But how do we get to know people? How do we get to know each other? How does anybody get to know anybody? And the answer there is that we talk to each other. Right? We share our stories. Right, I've got some stories. I got stories that would shock you. 
Right? But that's how we get to know each other, is we share our stories. We open our hearts to one another. We, we tell each other about our loves and our pet peeves, our desires, our passions, our aspirations, these things. You know, when people date, this is what they do. What do we say? You know, in fact, why do we date? We date to get to know each other. What do we do? A lot of talking. And I know this because I worked with college kids for a long time, uh, for seven years. It's <laughs> a long time. And... Uh, so I got to see a lot of dating relationships start, right? College kids, and I work with hundreds of them, and so they, I saw a lot of dating relationships start, and they always start with inordinate amount of time together talking, sometimes where they shouldn't be spending time together talking. My point is this, the nature of persons is that the, the self who we are, the soul, is unseen, it's internal. There are things you know about me from the way I look, the way I dress, all kinds of things, but you don't know me, me, until we've talked and I have opened myself up to you and told you about me. The thoughts, the feelings, the values, the desires, the passions. These are the things that must be expressed. People make themselves known by speaking. They tell us. They tell us who they are. And as far as they tell us, as much as they tell us, and as much that they tell us that is true, is how far we know them. Now, if you wanted to know God, how would you go about it? You could not. Because God is the ultimate person, is he not? He is the divine person. He, you, you could not know God unless God wanted to be known. And that is true just of, if that is true of us, how much more so is it true of, of God? Job 11 says, verses 7 to 9, he says, Can you find out the deep things of God? Rhetorical question. Answer, No. Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? No. It's higher than the heaven. How high is the heaven? You know, even what we mean by high, you know, it, it's a metaphor for it's beyond where we can go or understand. What can you do deeper than Sheol, the place of the dead? What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. God is an infinite, eternal person who is beyond our finding out. If, if other finite people in front of me are beyond finding out, other than they reveal themselves to me, how much more so the infinite and eternal God? How are we going to know him? Here's the good news. God speaks. He is not silent. We're seeing verse 1, he says, long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke. He spoke to our fathers. He spoke by the prophets in many times and in many ways. Throughout the, the time since the creation of the world, walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden, to Moses on top of, of Mount Sinai in the, in the, in the uh, giving of the commandments to walking with God's people and manifesting himself in so many ways through the prophets, through dreams, through prophetic utterance and all the prophets that have been captured here for us. The, in the Old Testament, God has been speaking a lot for a long time in a lot of different ways. Making himself 
known. Who is he? What is he like? What does he love and what does he hate? What are his pet peeves? What are his aspirations and desires? What are his plans and his purposes? These are things that are beyond finding out. They are the deep things of God. But God has been making himself known, initiating relationship. It is so inherent to the entirety of Scripture. Numbers 14.35 says, I, the Lord, have spoken. Right? I just grabbed it out of there because it says it a thousand times. I, the Lord, have have spoken. It's the theme of the whole Bible, this self-revelation of God. Even in the giving of the Ten Commandments, we hear it that way in Deuteronomy 10, the commandments that the Lord had spoken to you. Why does He speak the commandments? Because they reveal Himself. They're not just random rules that He gives out. They reflect and reveal who He is. As the Lord, as God, you shall have no other before Him. You shall make no images. You shall love life. You shall not commit murder. You shall love truth and you shall not lie. All of this is because that is who He is. He is revealing Himself even in the laws that He gives us. He is shaping relationship with us by revealing Himself, by speaking to us. Thus says the Lord. The Lord has spoken. Is it not written? Has He not said? It's a theme and content of the entire Bible. But then he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Right? Verse 2. In these last days, there's a whole sermon right there. We're not going to get into that. In the last days, it started with Jesus when he came. In these last days, when Jesus came, he inaugurated the last days. And so in these last days, he has spoken to us in a unique way. He has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, who is God's ultimate revelation of himself. Luke 9.35, we quoted recently from, the, from his baptism, Jesus' baptism when the sky opens, God speaks and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But here in Luke 9, he says, this is the Mount of Transfiguration when they see him in his glory unveiled a little bit for them to see. And God says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. He's going to talk. He's going to speak. He's going to speak for me. He's going to tell you things you need to know. He's going to communicate person to person. Listen to him. He speaks for me. John 1, 14 and 18, it's a very familiar section. In verse 14, so famous, it is the word that became flesh. And it is a, one of those things that is revelatory to know that Jesus is called, uh, uh, time and again, the word of God. He is, a, he is the word. Right, the communication, spoken, written. He is telling us, he is speaking. Listen to him. The word of God became flesh and he dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. What is the glory? As of the only son from the father. Right, He has spoken to us in these last days in his son, the only son from the father. He's full of grace and truth. And here's the thing, no one has ever seen God. That's that passage from Job. What can you know? Nothing. 
No one has ever seen God. No one has ever plumbed the depths of the infinite and eternal God who stands outside of the cosmos as its creator. No one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. The Word, the Son, became flesh. And we're told it's to make the Father known. Who is at the Father's side has made Him known. In these last days, the truth about God and who He is has become incarnate in a person. Embodied in His Son. And it says, from the Father's side. right? The only God from the Father's side. It's an interesting expression. The word underneath there is the King James and the New American Standard have it in, uh, in its literal translation, which is in, he was in the bosom of the Father, right? The, the, he was in the bosom, and it's, a, it's an expression, it's a Middle Eastern expression of the time that would say, in the nearest relation to him, who stood the closest to him, right? Who stood in the place of honor with him. In the bosom of the Father means in the very closest intimate relationship. That's how the NIV translates it. To, to, to get that across, the NIV says he was in the closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. The only person who could truly know the Father is someone who was in the bosom of the Father, who was in the, in the closest, nearest relation to the Father, who is incarnate, who is sent. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. He is the only one who can make the Father really known. To speak for him. John 12, 49 says, The Father Himself has given me commandment what to say, what to speak. I speak for the Father. I speak the Father's thought. I speak the Father's heart. I speak His mind and His purposes to you. But God was not only speaking in Jesus' words where you need to listen to Him. He's also visible in Jesus' perfect life. His whole life was a communication, a revelation of the Father, the character of the Father and the, the embodiment of holiness. Jesus, in all of his works, in his life, in his death, in his character, he's the embodiment of the character and the glory of the Father. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in the heart's our hearts, to give us the light, the, the revelation, the illumination, to, to give us the light of what? The knowledge of the glory of God, which we could obtain no other way. And where do we see it? Where do we, where do we come in contact with the, the, the revelation of the knowledge of the glory of God except in the face of Jesus Christ? That is in His character, in His person, in His glory, we see the Father. This is what Jesus said. We see the Father in Him in John 14. This is the upper room when He's about to be betrayed and, and, and handed over and arrested and crucified. And on that last night with His disciples, He's having these heart-to-hearts with them. And He says to them, If you have known Me, you've known the Father. You've already, you know the Father. How can we know God, right? That is part of the, 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 the desire of the entire human race. How can we know God? And the answer 
is that he must reveal himself. And Jesus says, if you've known me, you've known the Father. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. You know God because you know me. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. Jesus rebukes him. There seems to be a little rebuke in the words, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? You still don't get it? You still don't understand who I am in relation to the Father? Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you don't get it? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? That there's a coexistence and a co-inherence and, and that God is manifest and revealed in me that we share a life together? Show us. Jesus says, I have shown you. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or believe on account of the works. In these last days, the Father is speaking in the Son, speaking in his words, speaking as Jesus says, if you don't believe me, believe the works. You see God working. All that Jesus said, all that Jesus did, all that Jesus was, was a revelation of the Father, was God speaking to us. Jesus is God revealed. So we get to these verses, the end of two and all the way through four, particularly two and three, and I said each one of these is a sermon. Each one of these little phrases about the Lord Jesus is a sermon. But I'm going to do them in a couple of sentences. I'm going to, because I want them to be together to present one unified picture of what the author is giving to us. Who is this son Who is this Word of God? And he's going to tell us, if we haven't understood that he's spoken in his Son, and you might say, well, which Son? And what's he like? And who is he? How do we know? You know, is he just another guy like us who God picked out of the crowd? Who is this Son, the Word of God that comes from the bosom of the Father and makes him known? Well, we know. John, I did John 1, 14 and 18, but you know it starts in verse 1 where he says that in the beginning was this Word, and the Word was with God in the bosom of the Father, and the Word was God. The Word is, was God. In the closest fellowship with the Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in 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 an eternal Trinitarian relationship. And this word became flesh. So in these four verses summarizes really the entire book of Hebrews. What is the book of Hebrews about? It's about everything in these four verses. God revealing himself in the Son. And the Son being the the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And all that God had said. And all that God had been doing. And all of the life of Israel leading up to the, the coming of the Messiah. Who is this Messiah? And so the book of Hebrews reveals the preeminence of Christ in all things and that who he is. And he does it because he wants us to trust him. Learning through the book of Hebrews is this encouragement to stand fast in the faith. 
to not fall away, to not let your heart become hardened, to not move away from your love and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation and all that he is to us. And he does it. He encourages us. He encourages his people to not fall away, to be steadfast by revealing the objective, the glory of the one in whom their faith and trust is. By giving a a fuller, richer picture of who Christ is that you've put your trust in. And he is worthy of your trust. It reveals Jesus then as the center and fulfillment of every Old Testament hope. The one who has opened a new and living way into the presence of God. And that's what he has shown us and who Christ is and what he has done to open a new and living way into the presence of the Father as he's calling us to draw near to the Father through him. No man comes to the Father except through me. And in Hebrews he's telling you, Jesus has done everything to open that new and living way to invite us to draw near to the Father. To know him. To love him. To worship him. To stand accepted. And joyful in his presence. The author is writing to Jewish Christians. We don't know who the author is. It's one of the only books in the New Testament that doesn't have an inscription at the beginning telling us who wrote it. And so there's a lot of speculation. I'm not going to give you the list of potentials because I, I, I read a lot of commentaries that go through all these. It's probably a list of at least a dozen names that could have written it. Paul's at the top. But in the end, they always say, In the end, we don't know. So there is that. We do. It's that one book where we really don't know for sure who the author is. Maybe it's Paul. Maybe it's one of these other guys, Apollos. But the point is that the author is writing to Jewish Christians or to Jews who think they're Christians. And, you know, so we see throughout the New Testament these Judaizers. They're they're folks who, who are accepting Jesus at one level, but they can't let go of the Old Testament law and its ceremonies and its, you know, and so they're kind of, they're called Judaizers because they're trying to take this, you know, new faith in Christ and marry it to the Old Testament law, you know, and it tells me, well, yes, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but you need to get circumcised and keep these laws and do this, right? And they're trying to hold these two together. And so Paul, or the author, or whoever he is, is writing to a group of Jewish Christians, a Jewish congregation, where there is this sort of mixed bag of what's going on, and he's encouraging them to see how Jesus has fulfilled all of that, and you need to have your trust in Christ alone and to stand fast in that faith, in Christ, in Christ alone. And he does it again simply by showing them the glory of the one in whom they trust and the fullness and the completeness of his work for our salvation. You don't need all of that. So in verse 2 it says, it is this, he has spoken to us in his son. It goes directly from his son whom he appointed heir of all things. As God's only son, right? as we know how you get to be somebody's heir. Firstborn son or the only son. But as the only Son of God, He is the heir of all things that belong to God or come from God, potential from God, His riches, the riches of His grace and the glories of His kingdom. And Jesus is the heir of all of these things that have to do with God. And in Christ, we become heirs. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, we are the children of God. And if we're children by faith in Christ, then we are heirs. 
heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And Hebrews is going to tell us as you get to chapter 9, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Christ is the inheritor of everything that belongs to God. And he says, as you're in Christ, stand fast in your faith in Christ, because in Christ, you become a co-heir of the eternal inheritance that belongs to him. Verse 3 goes on to say that he is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance, the shining out, the effulgence, the brightness, the... He is the the radiance of the glory of God. He shines with the glory of God. We see that in his moral glory. Everything he said is true. Everything he said is right. Everything he said is life-giving. The words that I have spoken to you, they are life. They are truth and they are life. We see his glory in, in the perfection of his teaching, in the perfection of his life and his character. He shines the glory of God in the way that he lives. He lives for the glory of God. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Kept all of those laws. And in that sense, he shows forth. He radiates God's glory in the perfection of his work. That's where John 17, 4 and 5, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me. I did it all and I did it perfectly. I glorified you. I honored you in who I was and what I did because you were working in me and through me. Now glorify me, he says, in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. When I was in the bosom of the Father, in the nearest relation to the Father, when the Word was with God and the Word was God, sharing the glory of the Father, the Father, God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, share the same divine glory as they share the same divine nature. And here he radiates and shares the glory of his Father. He did it in his life on earth and all that he said and was and did, and he does it now as he sits at the right hand sharing that glory that he was glorified with, that he had with the Father before the world existed. And verse 3 goes on to say, not only is he the radiance of God's glory, is the exact imprint of his nature. It's quite a list. <laughs> well, I skipped the one there. He says he created, through whom he created the world. Sorry, we're going to have to back up. Through whom first he created the world. And it's interesting, the word world there is not the word you'd expect. Normally it would be like the word cosmos. In other places it talks about creating the cosmos. Here the word is ionos, which is a word uh, for the ages. And, and in ages, it, it's the, all of the ages, the age before things were, the, this age and the age that is to come, that kind of thing, that language. And so that he, through whom he created All the ages, in a sense, he created through whom he created time and space and energy and matter. It's a way of getting at the idea that he created all things, not just the world in its physical sense, but time itself. Even the the ages and space and energy and matter. He is the creator of all things. In Colossians chapter 1, it says... For by him, and it says it several places, it attributes the creation to Jesus, to God the Son, through whom all things were made. He does it in John 1, where we've been. But I'll just go to Colossians 1. For by him all things, how many things? All of them, 
were created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, uh, whether thrones or dominions or authorities, all things. Right? He's trying to get at, there's nothing that he didn't make. In fact, in John 1, it says that all things that were made were made through him, and nothing that was made was not made through him. Right? It gets at that whatever exists. They were created through him and for him. They were all created for Jesus in the sense that he is the word of God, the son of God. He is God. And he is the exact imprint of his nature in verse 3. He is, it's a difficult thing to get at. The, the exact imprint there is, the word is character in the Greek. It's the word from which we get character. And it has this idea of an impression. If you had a signet ring and pushed it into soft wax, it leaves an exact impression. And he's saying Jesus in his, in his incarnation and in his person is the exact character, the exact imprint expression of the Father, where Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. He's the perfect representation of God's true nature, who God essentially is and his character and his nature is is embodied in and expressed through the person of Christ. And so Colossians 1, right before it says he created all things, it says he is the image of the invisible God. The invisible God made visible. That's Jesus. The invisible God made visible. He's the image of the invisible God. He reveals. God is manifesting. There's a visible embodiment, like a, a living uh, manifestation in the person of Christ of the life and character of the Father. In fact, in Colossians 2, he goes on to say all the fullness of deity dwelt in him bodily. All the fullness dwelt, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And So he is going on in verse 3, he upholds the universe by the Word of his power. Moment by moment, He sustains all things in existence. Things don't fly apart into nothingness because he holds them together. The word of creation, we would think, you know, as he he spoke creation, he created all things. He spoke and it was and we are. And we might think, well, now do we have existence in ourselves? We'll just continue to be forever? Like, I can make myself. How many of you make yourself exist? How, How many of you are inherent even in the creation that all of it exists by the word of his power and it stays in existence? By the word of his power. He upholds all things. It exists at his pleasure. We exist. Each person, the delicate tilt of the earth in its, in its perfect rotation and axis, the sun, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, the universe, whatever is in existence in its perfection is, is both created and upheld by the word of his power. So in verse 3, he says, after making purification for sins. Now, that struck me as just so out of place as I read this. As I was studying it, when, as you read this, but in these last days he's spoken in his son. He appointed him the heir of all things. He is, through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of, of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint and character of his essential nature. He's upholding the universe by his power. And 
after making purification for sins. Right? Now, we're on, now we're on earth doing something. The one thing that's a tribute, you know, you know, he creates the world and then he invades it to purify us of all sin. Right? It's, it's, this, it's the thing that he does. It's the only real reference to his life and his work on earth and it's tucked here in the middle of this immense glory of this personage of who he is, and tucked right there in the middle of it is making purification for my sin. Making purification for your sin. It's why Jesus came. It's a linchpin of the work of Christ, tucked right here in the fullness of his power and his glory that he shares with the Father, that he gave himself to pay the penalty of our sins. It's part of His glory that He would do this. Titus 2.14, it says this, that He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Why? To purify for Himself a people for His own possession. You. You. The church. Our many ways stand at, at the grand purposes of all of creation. Why things exist rather than not exist? It's the greatest philosophical question. Every philosopher, secular or sacred. Why is there something rather than nothing? And how did there come to be something? And not nothing. And how did it get here? And is it eternal? That's weird. Or is there an eternal personal God? That's, which is easier to believe? But there's this, why is there something? Why is there something and not nothing? And part of the answer to that whole thing that the New Testament and all the Scripture gives it was to purify for himself a people for his own possession. When the world ends, as we know it, what continues? It is purified and the new will get a new heavens and a new earth. But what goes from the old heavens and earth into the new heavens and earth? What is it that goes there? One thing. A people that are his own possession. Whom he redeemed and purified for himself. And then in verse 3 it says, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's where he came from. He's returned to the bosom of the Father, to the throne at his right hand. The throne of heaven, the place of honor, the seat of power, of nearness to God, nearness to the Father. He sat down to reign in the fullness of his eternal glory. That glory that was his before the world began has been returned to him. And he sits now, reigning in power, shared with the Father in all of his glory, waiting for all of his enemies to be made his footstool in the day that he will return, when he will rise again from his throne and return in that glory. First time he came in humility, the next time will be in glory and power. And all who will see him will bow the knee, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Seems anticlimactic to say in verse 4 he's much superior to the angels. 
Yeah. If the name that he inherited is more excellent than theirs, then at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess what? That Jesus Christ is the Lord. Right? And that is the name that is above every name, the Lord. The Lord. Not a Lord, not one of the Lords, but the Lord. The Old Testament, there's actually a verse that says, to Yahweh, to Jehovah, to God, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And in the New Testament, Jesus is put in that place where the knees will all bow to this, the creator God of the Old Testament is now will bow the knee and say the same things that belong to God, to Jesus. They will confess that he is the Lord to the glory of the Father. So let us press on to know him. I started with this idea of how do we know him? Because I think that is in many ways the whole point of the whole Bible is that we would be a possession, a people, purified, that would be a possession. And not just a possession, but you know, it is a special possession, but the metaphors take in that we would be his children, beloved. That we'd know him and love him and have access to him like children. That we would belong to him in that sense. It's relationship. I would say the highest, the highest privilege of the Christian is not our justification, which is a great privilege. It's, it, 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 we're saying that the, the whole reformation is based on how does one get justified with God. But justification, as awesome as it is, is, is a means to the end of what? Adoption. Because we're not justified and left out in the cold. Not gonna, you know, we're not condemned any longer. You've been justified. The court sees that you are now free of guilt. You may go. He doesn't say you may go. He says, now come home with me. To the Father's house where there are many rooms. And he's going to prepare a place for us. Let us press in to know him, which is the point of many of this when he spoke many times in many ways. Why? He's revealing himself. And all of the glory presented of the person of Jesus, and right in the middle of it, the glory of this person, what does he do? He provides purification for our sins so that we may be justified. And being justified, we would be proper objects for adoption. The author is trying to show us the power and the glory of this Savior so that we will trust him, right? So that we will rest on the fullness and the sufficiency. If this one provides a salvation, a redemption, you can trust him and you don't need all that. In him, it's complete. The book of Hebrews is going to be the whole thing is going to show it's been done. It's complete. And it's all in him. And you can trust him. The eternal Son of God who is the image of the Father sharing and radiating His glory. The creator, the sustainer of the universe. This one. This one made purification for your sins. This one did it. And He does all things well. And so He calls us to stand fast in the faith. That Jesus, His blood and His grace and His righteousness are all that we need. And he is sufficient, and we stand fast in Christ, in Christ alone. 
And he is worthy, utterly worthy. 1 John 1, 7 says the blood of Jesus, his son, his son cleanses us from all sin. Oh, that we would trust him. That we would believe it is done, it is finished. That it is complete. Do you believe, and really what it goes after is his people here. He says, do you believe that Jesus died for you? Do you believe that the purification was made, that the, that, that the debt for sin was paid? Do you believe that your sins are forgiven, cleansed, that you've been purified and stand redeemed and accepted in his presence? Will you trust him? The second thing that we see just... Three things as we close and apply a little bit. The second one is that the Bible is revelation. That the Bible is God telling us things that you could not know any other way. Right? This is the need for revelation. There are things. What can you know of God? Nothing. How can you understand His purposes in the world? You won't. How do you know how your relationship stands with your Creator? You don't until he tells you it's wrong, <laughs> right? It's messed up, right? Until God speaks, and he, he speaks the truth about the world and about himself and about us, and really we can only have knowledge of ourselves in relation to the God who made us. And so he tells us about those relations. Here is the revelation from beginning of end, the fall, right? And the, and the redemption that is ours in Christ, to the glory that we will, the inheritance that we will share with him. The only way to truly know him is to listen to his word as he speaks to us. Some have said this is God's love letter to his people. And he has a people purified for himself. And he's written to, and, he's, and he's speaking to us. He wrote us a letter to know him and to understand, to explain and to relate to be known that speaking that creates and is the foundation of relationship. He has spoken and he is not silent. Jai Packer says, to follow the imagination of one's heart in the realm of theology is the way to remain ignorant of God and to become an idol worshiper. The idol in this case being the false mental image of God that you've made up in your head by one's own speculation and imagine, imagination. This is what the world does when you tell them, say, oh my God's not like that. Well, what's he like? And then they tell you. It's their speculation and imagination. They've created God in their own image. Right? Once upon a time, God created us in his image and the world is returning the favor. God's just like me. He approves what I approve. He likes what I like. He agrees with me an amazing amount of the time. Right, the speculation, we don't have to speculate. God has spoken to our fathers and by the prophets many ways and many times. And in these last days, he's spoken to us so clearly, so amazingly, so richly in his son. All that he is and all that he has said. John Piper says, God does not want us to have stupid ideas about him in our head. How do we avoid that? This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to 
all of God's word as he reveals himself to us. We need to love his word and to be in his word and to study his word. And my friend, I want us to catch as I close with this thought that that the whole purpose of God's self-revelation next to his own glory is a relationship with us. A friendship. He wants to be known. He wants to be loved and related to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And oh, how much he loves his people. And all that he has done to redeem us and make us his children and bring us to himself as children with their father. You know, the power of the Spirit by the work of the Son to know and to love the Father. How should we pray? Pray like this, Abba. Talk to him, Father. Father, hear me. Like a son, like a daughter to their father. The, the purpose is relationship. Packer says again, truly staggering, is that God's purpose in revelation is to make friends with us. To succeed in making friends, it was absolutely necessary that he speak to us. John 5, 39 and 40, he says this. Jesus says, you search the scriptures. He's talking to these Pharisees, maybe to the Judaizers then too later on. You search the scriptures daily because you think that in them you will have eternal life. You'll find eternal life there, but you're missing this point. This is it. They bear witness about me, and you refuse to come to me and to have life. He is calling us to himself, to relationship. In John 17, 3, I think it is, 3 or 4, 3, it says, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. The life of the ages that he created is to know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent, is to know him. I mean, are you pressing in, and when you read the scripture, when you're in prayer, when all the things that you're doing in church and in your religious life, is the goal of all of it to know him and to love him, to relate to him, to pray, Abba, Father, to know him as your father, to walk with him as your father. Come to me, Jesus says. (laughs) You're in all this religious stuff and in the scriptures or whatever, but don't fail to come to me, to know me, to trust me, to love me, to walk with me. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify a people for his own possession. God has spoken. God is speaking by his word and by his spirit. Are we listening? And will we come to have life? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is not only living and true, but is your word that you have spoken and that you are speaking. Thank you that you love us enough to condescend, to communicate as we might understand, to send your only Son the one who from the bosom of the Father to make you known. May we know you. Let us press on. Father, help us, teach us, show us through your word and through prayer and through fellowship and through all the various means you have given, teach us to come to you and have life. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.